Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, this morning, uh, we are continuing in a sermon series that we started a few weeks back where we're looking at the mission and values of our church as Christ Church in town. We've said that it's important for us, uh, as we just prayed, we're so incredibly grateful for the ways that uh, God has sustained us and kept us uh, through uh, the ups and downs that's been uh, 2020 and 2021, but that we're hoping and we're looking forward to thinking, thinking about who, what is God calling us to do and to be? Right for, for so many churches, our, our own included, COVID kind of reduced our mission to uh, staying alive, staying open, staying viable. Uh, but now we want to look ahead and say, well, what, what unique contribution do we feel called to make to the kingdom of God in our city, in our place, in our time at Christ Church in town? And so our uh, mission statement as a church, which we've been looking at for these first weeks, is, uh, is that our mission is to see and to display the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus in our city. To see Jesus, that's what we started with uh, the first week of this series, right? That we believe that when we gather together, every single one of us has the same deepest need, right? That we don't just need on a Sunday morning, uh, a build, you know, uh, teaching on how to try harder or live our lives better. We need to see Jesus. We need to come to a truer understanding of who he is and what he offers us every single day. And so we want to see Jesus. And then last week we looked at our calling to display the truth of Jesus, right? That in a world that's grown cynical about whether or not the truth is knowable, that we have a a truth to proclaim, the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And today, we're going to look at what it means for us to display the beauty of Jesus, right? Not just to proclaim a message of truth, but to embody a beautiful community as a church, And so, uh, if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Our scripture passage this morning is going to be Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated.
In the middle of the last century, uh, the English journalist and at the time religious skeptic Malcolm Muggeridge, great name, uh, went uh, to take up an assignment of reporting on a woman who at the time was a little-known nun working in Calcutta, uh, Mother Teresa, and her missionaries, the missionaries of charity. He was at the time a skeptic of Christianity, uh, and he went uh, to observe Mother Teresa's work uh, there in Calcutta as they cared for the lowest and most vulnerable and poor, some of the poorest people in the world, uh, at the bottom of Indian, India's caste system there in Calcutta. And in observing her and getting to know her and getting to know these sisters, uh, these fellow nuns with whom she worked, he was so persuaded that he actually became converted uh, to the Christian faith. Uh, into Teresa's Catholic faith. He had resisted, uh, of course, uh, up to this point in his life and had been skeptical about the truth of Jesus. But something about observing the beauty of Jesus in the life of these women among the poor persuaded his heart towards faith. The book that he wrote made up of interviews with Teresa and observations of, his work, of her work, he titled, Something Beautiful for God. Something beautiful for God. That's my prayer and our hope for our church is that all of our work, the work that we've done over these seven years, the work that we continue to do would be the planting of something beautiful for God. Right? Not just a church that proclaims a true message for God, but a church that truly does embody something beautiful for God, a sign and a foretaste of his kingdom, something that our neighbors can look at and even if they've been resistant to the truth of Christianity, might be persuaded by something of its beauty through the work of this church. You know, if you read uh, some of the older atheist writers, right, the older atheists who were opponents to Christianity would often oppose it on, on, uh, on the grounds of the teachings of the faith, right, disproving miracles, disproving allegedly the resurrection or creation. But if you read the newer atheists, Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and, and these who uh, have created an industry of publishing books against the truth of Christianity, their arguments are not primarily about the truthfulness or falsity of Christian claims. They're about uh, what they perceive to be the ugliness and immorality of Christian life, right? So there's far less ink spilled about arguing against the resurrection or against the miracles, Instead, they're writing to say Christianity and religion in general is bad for the world, right? If you look at what Christianity has represented, the crusades and slavery and hypocrisy and misogyny and all these things, the Christianity isn't not true because the resurrection can be disproven, but they're writing against Christianity, not because it's false, but because in their mind it's ugly. It's not good. If you listen to the voices, uh, I know all of us have these people in our lives, maybe even some of us uh, are them, of the rising group of nuns, right? That we've, well, we talked about nuns earlier. Those are the, the Catholic religious sisters. These nuns uh, are those, the largest uh, growing religious group in America are those who proclaim no religious faith or affiliation. And most of them, it's not because they read some cutting-edge argument against the faith. It's not because they became dissuaded of the resurrection. It's because of their experience or their perception of the Christian church and its legacy 
in the world. So in today's day and age, it's not enough just to proclaim the truthfulness of Jesus. In today's world, we also have to display the beauty and goodness of Jesus. To show that Jesus alone represents something beautiful and good and true and life-giving for us as individuals, for our city, and for our world. So the calling of the church is to display this beauty. The New Testament uh, scholar William uh, Lane used to, when when he'd guest lead at a Presbyterian church in Nashville, his prayer every single Sunday was that Jesus would show himself to be beautiful and believable. Right, and that twofold thing is the witness of the church to make Jesus believable, to show that, that there really is good reason to believe the truth and to display him to be beautiful. At the same time, as G.K. Chesterton said, make it attractive, make good men wish that it were true and then show that it is. And the call of the church uh, is to be attractive, not in terms of Uh, you know, incredible kind of concert-level music performance or expert-level programming, but to be attractive to the beauty of our community, to be attractive through the tenderness of our love and the fierceness of our care for our neighbors and our faithfulness as friends. And so we want to look from this passage at this call to beauty, uh, the beauty of the Redeemer, the beauty of the redeemed, and in the call to repair the beauty of the world. First, the beauty of the Redeemer. This uh, passage in the uh, prophet Isaiah is a prophecy. This is him looking forward to what he is telling us the work of the Messiah is going to look like. That when the Messiah comes, he's going to be the one who proclaims the favor of the Lord and the power of his spirit, who announces good news to the poor, the binding up of the brokenhearted, freedom for captives the opening of the prison to those who are bound. In Isaiah's mind, what he's, uh, what he's literally looking forward to the Messiah to do is to end Israel's exile, to restore the people of God from their poverty, to let them loose from their prison, to, uh, to announce good news of favor and judgment on their enemies, that that's what the Messiah will do when the Messiah comes. You know, it's a beautiful vision in its own right. Just this passage in Isaiah is a beautiful picture of what God has promised to do in his Messiah. But this passage takes on an added level of beauty when we find it on the lips of Jesus in Luke chapter 4. In Luke 4, Jesus delivers what we could call his first sermon. He walks in to the synagogue at Nazareth and he opens up Uh, the scroll to this exact passage. And this is his first sermon that he gives in public. Now, when we started our church seven years ago, I agonized and prayed about what we ought to preach about to start, right? What, what, how should our church get started? What's the right uh, first foot to launch this ministry on? And we started uh, on a series in the gospel, the gospel of Mark. And so we, you know, and and, and all preachers do this, right? You think about what's, what's my first message going to be to these people? Well, Jesus gets up and he reads the first uh, two verses of this passage, and then his sermon on it is actually incredibly short. No amens on that one, but it's a short sermon. And he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, and he sits down. That's a 
That's a gutsy sermon, right? To say this, this passage, this looking forward in hope to the power of the Messiah, when I read it and you hear it, it's fulfilled. Because it's all about me. This is a job description of the Messiah. And I'm telling you, this is what I've come to do. This is my job description. I'm the one who's come to bring good news to the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted, to give liberty to the captives and release to the prisoner. And we see this uh, just bursting off the pages of the Gospels, right? That this is what Jesus was doing. That over and over again, we see that it's the poor who run to Jesus and find hope in his good news. And it's the rich, like the rich young ruler, who often walk away sad. That it's the brokenhearted and the destitute who find their wounds healed and built up and who are attracted to him. And that it's the prideful and the self-righteous that are often sent away angry, even conspiring in their anger to kill him. Jesus shows us what good news for the poor and true liberty for the captive really looks like. You know, often the beauty of the Lord in the scriptures uh, pertains to uh, that part of God's nature that's high and exalted, right? It's the, the longing of the psalmist to look on the beauty of the Lord in his temple. Or it's the beauty of the king sitting on his throne in the Song of Songs. But in Jesus, we see something different. We see the beauty of the Lord uh, getting his feet dirty. Right? We see the beauty of the Lord when it hits the streets, when it deals with everyday, ordinary people, when it deals with the poor and the brokenhearted. And we see what it looks like when the beauty of the Lord with skin on comes and shows compassion and tenderness and mercy to the poor, to the captive, into the brokenhearted. You see, a part of the appeal of Christianity is the appeal of a true message, right? That we believe that Jesus really was who he said he was, that he really did live and die and rise again, that he really did ascend to the right hand of the Father, and he really will come again to judge the living and the dead. But a part of the appeal of Christianity is the beauty of Jesus, right? Not just a true message, but a compelling character, someone who when we see him, we see the Father, we see what God is really like. And someone whose beauty, whose, whose love and his mercy draws us to him. Right, so that faith isn't just the assent that it's true, but it's the, the statement that it's beautiful. Right, truth persuades our minds, and then beauty moves our hearts. It compels our worship. But it's the beauty of Jesus that causes Mary to pour out her perfume on Jesus' feet. But it's the beauty of Jesus that compels us to worship him. The beauty of Jesus draws us to worship the one that we've been persuaded is true. So we see the beauty of the Redeemer, and next we want to see the beauty of the redeemed. Look at what this passage tells us that Jesus does, that the Messiah does for his people. He says he's come not only to comfort all who mourn, verse 3, to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress, a beautiful crown, instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, 
that he may be glorified. What God's saying is not only will the Messiah be beautiful, but he will make his people to be beautiful. Right? He'll take away the ashes that were a symbol of mourning and tears and instead put on them a beautiful crown. That he's going to take away their stained garments of sin and guilt and instead give them new garments. Look at the way this chapter ends. We didn't read the whole chapter, but look, uh, starting in verse 10, uh, 10 and 11. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. Right, so the vision isn't just that Jesus, the Messiah, would be beautiful, but that he would make us beautiful. And that he would give us something of his beauty to display in the world. That we would shine with a reflected beauty. The beauty of Jesus reflected and shining in and through us. That we not only would display his beauty, or not only would see his beauty, but would display it as well. You know, beauty is always meant to be shared. Right? Whenever you, whenever you see something beautiful, right, it's our nature to want to share it. Right? If you hear a, a great piece of music, you want to tell your friends about it. You want to say, hey, listen to this song that I just heard. If you see a beautiful sunset, even if you're alone, sometimes you think, man, I wish my wife or my friend or somebody was here to see this with me. Right? Beauty is meant to be seen and appreciated, but it's also meant to be shared. Haley and I have been watching a, uh, a Netflix documentary um, called This is a Robbery. It's, about, uh, it's a four-part documentary about the, the largest art heist in American history. I think it's actually the largest art heist in world history. Uh, it was a, uh, a small art museum in Boston uh, that two men walked into and robbed of priceless art, a Rembrandt, a Manet, several other really important pieces. Uh, they, they came in, they got out, and this happened in 1990, and it's still never been found. This art has never resurfaced. There's never been an arrest made in the case. Seemingly, they got away with it. And so they'll, they'll interview, ex, you know, so spoiler alert, you're watching a documentary that does not resolve uh, with, uh, with an answer. But they're interviewing these people and go, hey, where did this artwork go? This beautiful artwork that was meant to be enjoyed. Where is it gone if it's not, nobody's tried to sell it? So they haven't made the money off of it. Uh, you know, it's not been apprehended in any other arrest or anything like that. So they're, they're speculating that it's got to be sitting in somebody's basement, right? That somewhere Rembrandt's painting of the Sea of Galilee is sitting either in the, the basement of, of a Russian oligarch or a mafia member or something like that, that somebody has taken it and they've just hidden it, which somehow only amplifies the sin of the robbery, right? That it's taking a, a piece of beauty meant for good, meant for display, and said, no, it's mine. And if it means getting away with it, nobody else is ever going to see it. Right? Because it's, it's so wrong because beauty is meant to be shared. Beauty is meant to be displayed. It's something like what Jesus meant when he said that he's, this church is meant to be a city on a hill. Right? That it's not meant to be a light hidden under a bushel. 
right? The light of the gospel isn't meant for us and us alone. It's meant to shine. It's a beauty that's meant to be reflected and displayed for the world to see. This is the way that we see the gospel moving forward in the book of Acts, right? If you, if you look at the, the story of the early church in the book of Acts, it's always these two things together, the proclamation of truth and the demonstration of beauty and goodness, right? It's the apostolic preaching of the truth, and then it's the beautiful community that's drawing people into it. Acts chapter 2, after Peter's famous Pentecost sermon, the early church is described this way. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. So here they are, they're devoted to truth. They're, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending in the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having, the favor, with all, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Right, so it's a commitment to truth, but then it's this beautiful community. People living life as family across cultural and ethnic and religious lines coming together into a new family. People sharing their possessions so that if, if rich and poor are in fellowship together and somebody has needs, somebody sells their possessions and gives to meet the need. Living with genuine fellowship, breaking bread, having meals, praising God. And God says they enjoyed the favor, not just of their members, right? not just of the insiders, but of outsiders. That God was adding daily to their number those who were coming in, who were captivated by the beauty of what they saw and wanted to join. Again, I'll quote uh, Leslie Newbegin, who I think I've quoted every week in this series, which is, uh, maybe I'll go eight for eight, we'll see. Uh, Newbegin was an Indian missionary. Uh, he was uh, an Englishman who uh, spent most of his life uh, ministering in southern India and then came back to the UK and came to realize that the Western world had become every bit as much of a mission field uh, as the Far East, right? That, that proclaiming the gospel and embodying the gospel in secular Western culture was every bit, if not more challenging than ministry in India, that a post-Christian culture required a missionary witness just as much as a pre-Christian culture did. And so here's what Newbegin wrote. He said, I've come to feel that the primary reality of which we have to take account in seeking for a Christian impact on the life of the world is the Christian congregation itself. How is it possible that the gospel should be made credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross. I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel, hermeneutic's a big word, uh, basically it means uh, teaching and understanding, right? That the only way to preach the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. I'm, of course, not denying the importance of many activities by which we seek to challenge the world with life in the gospel. Evangelistic campaigns, distribution of Bibles, Christian literature, conferences, and books. But I am saying that all of these are secondary. 
and that they have the power to accomplish their purpose only is they are rooted in and lead back to the believing community. Here's what Newbegin's saying. The only way that the gospel becomes credible in our world is through a congregation of men and women who believe it and who try to live it out together in their neighborhoods. It's men and women who believe it and then who are shaped by it to love one another and then to love their neighbors, to love the poor, to love the brokenhearted. That the gospel becomes credible as ordinary men and women seek to embody its grace and its goodness. There is nothing more beautiful in this world than God's grace, right? Than the, the beauty of Jesus is seen most clearly at the cross, most clearly in his grace. When we demonstrate that grace, when we celebrate God's reconciling grace that's brought us to God, and we give thanks for it in worship, when we extend his reconciling grace to our brothers and sisters in the church, when we reach out in love towards those who are hurting, this is a beautiful picture of the beauty of Jesus. The church is meant to be a laboratory of grace. Right? Some of you will remember science classes in, in school. Some of you would rather not remember science classes in school. But you remember you had uh, lecture and lab. Right? In your lecture classes, that's when the teacher stood up there and told you about the stuff. And then you had lab where you actually got to go in and do it. Right? So in in anatomy lab, they talked to you about the way the body worked, or in, in lecture, they talked about the way the body worked, and then in lab, you got to dissect a frog, right? Or in, uh, in, in lecture, they would tell you about the way that, that chemistry worked, and then in lab, you get to play with the chemicals and make stuff blow up. Maybe I was doing it wrong, but anyway, we, we fool ourselves if we think that the world is going to learn through lecture alone. Right? Good preaching is, is necessary for the church. Right belief is necessary for the church. But lecture is not enough. It has to get worked out in lab. It has to get worked out around our tables and in our neighborhoods. It has to get worked out in, in conversations, both good and hard. It has to get worked out in our love of the poor. And it has to get worked out in our reconciliation across the lines of difference that the church is meant to be a laboratory of God's grace. And then finally, this passage points us to the beauty of the church's calling, the beauty of repair. Look at what it says uh, in the final verse. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. And they shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. The beautiful community is called to set about to the work of repairing the beauty of the world. Right? When it talks about repairing the devastated and ruined cities, that is talking about every single city on the face of this earth. In this world, there is only ruined cities. Right? This world was made beautiful. This world was made good and whole. And it's broken. It's broken in the country and it's broken in the city. It's broken... Uh, in America, and it's broken in China, it's broken in India, and it's broken in Canada. Right? Every square inch of this world was made beautiful, and sin has rendered it ruined. Not utterly, of course. There's glimpses of beauty, there's glimpses of goodness. But there's nothing in this world that sin hasn't touched. 
There's nothing in this world that hasn't been broken by our fall. This world is a broken palace. And the kingdom of God is a restoration project. It is about making new and whole everything that's broken. It's about rebuilding every broken thing. The scriptures tell us that there is nothing in this world so broken that it can't be redeemed and made whole by the power of the gospel. And there's no part of this world so broken that in the coming of Christ, it won't be made whole and it won't be made right. The kingdom of God is as broad and as wide as all of the brokenness of this world. It extends as we sing every Christmas, uh, when we sing joy to the world, he lives to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. Everything broken by sin is meant to be addressed uh, by the kingdom of God. Alvin Plantinga refers to sin as the vandalization of shalom. Shalom being that perfect peace and wholeness that God's created world has. That sin is its vandalization. It's the brokenness of what was made to be peaceful and whole. And the gospel means the restoration and reconciliation of that shalom spiritually, culturally, societally. This is to say that the church is equipped with a big gospel, a gospel that is as big as the entire world. You know, when we teach our new members class, which uh, some of you just went through, others of you went through seven years ago and we started this thing. Uh, Others of you haven't gone through yet. We'd love to have you. When we get to the point where we talk about the gospel, we talk about two different angles on the gospel. Right, one uh, we look at in John 3.16, right, a beautiful and well-known passage, right, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? That is a gospel of eternal life for all who believe. It's incredibly broad, right? It's God's love for the entire world, but it's also, it's very particular, It's about the gospel's impact on an individual person. Every sinner who believes gets not condemnation, but eternal life. So you could think of that as the narrow angle on the gospel, what it means for you and me, what it means for an individual sinner to repent. But then we also look at Colossians 1. Colossians 1.20 says this of Jesus. Through him, that's through Jesus, to reconcile to himself, that's God, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the wide-angle lens of the gospel, right? That though the gospel has eternal and far-reaching consequences for individuals, it also has incredibly broad implications for the entire world, that it will mean the remaking of all things, the reconciliation of all things. You'll sometimes hear people uh, in this world that we live in where we split and divide and get angry needlessly at one another, split on this particular issue in the Christian community, right? Some will say that the church should only only be concerned with preaching the gospel and not be concerned with societal sins, Right, You may have heard such things. And I agree that the church should be fixated on preaching the gospel. But we need to have an understanding of the gospel 
that means the reconciliation of all things, right? Yes, the church can't do everything, right? This church can't be everything that needs to be done in the world. We have a particular calling to announce the ministry of reconciliation, right? To, To individual sinners to repent and to believe. But as the church scatters and as we join with the other churches of our community, as we join hands with the churches around the world, as you go into every single place that God has called you to, your calling may not be to preach the gospel with words. Your calling uh, likely is not to be a preacher. But your calling is to carry the gospel, the good news that God is setting every broken thing straight, that he's reconciling every broken relationship, that he is the God who announces good news to the poor and binds up the brokenhearted and announces freedom to the prisoner. That if your view of the gospel doesn't include those things as well, then it's not Isaiah's God, which turns out to be Jesus' God, the God who cares passionately about the poor and the brokenhearted and the imprisoned. We are meant to be a church that radiates with the beauty of Jesus that shows his beauty to the world. And friends, the good news, the incredibly good news is that you already are that kind of church in so many ways, right? I, as your pastors, I get to see the beauty of the gospel worked out in your lives in so many ways. I see the members of our church who've taken up a calling by entering into the world of adoption and foster care. Right, seeking to uh, not only take pro-life convictions, but to then adorn those with the beauty of sacrifice. The beauty of saying, you have a home in my home. To be a home for the orphan. I've seen others of you over the course of COVID. Those of you, uh, I I saw members of this church uh, give real and lasting benefit uh, to tenants in their property, granting them uh, relief from their rent for years extending compassion on those who needed it. I saw others of you work to pack groceries and put them in people's cars here in Lackawanna as people were struggling to get to the grocery store during COVID. I've seen you provide food for those who are just out of the hospital. I've seen you courageously working on your own relationships and your own marriages, believing God for reconciliation and grace. I've seen some of you walk into some of the darkest places in our city, walking into prisons, walking into juvenile justice systems, walking into broken homes and broken neighborhoods, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. I've seen you reaching across and having hard conversations with people uh, that you have very little in common with and seeking understanding and brotherhood and sisterhood and grace. And it's absolutely beautiful. And it portrays and radiates the beauty of Jesus in our world. Fyodor Dostoevsky, uh, in his book, The Idiot, put, uh, put these words uh, on the, the lips of its main character. I believe that the world will be saved by beauty. I believe that the world will be saved by beauty. And it's not just the, the generic beauty of sunsets and Rembrandts. It's the reflected beauty of Jesus shining through his people that will be the salvation of this broken world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're asking you to continue your work of making us beautiful. Lord Jesus, uh, 
The surest way to lose track of that is to forget just how capable of ugliness we are. Lord, we're capable of pride and self-righteousness. We're capable of judgmentalism. Lord Jesus, but we want uh, to be made beautiful and holy. We want to receive the crown of beauty in place of the ashes of mourning. We want to be a planting for your righteousness that will shine out with your glory. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of your reconciled and redeemed people. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to make us more and more beautiful, remake us more and more in your image, so that we might proclaim the gospel not only with the words of our lips, but that we would demonstrate it with the reality of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.